1: Of course I'm depressed. First of all, I'm depressed Barbie. I come with black turtlenecks, Lexapro, cigarettes, and Radiohead CDs.
2: It's more than that.
1: Why wouldn't I be depressed? Skipper joined a garbage-eating cult, Midge is making online porn, and my boyfriend is drawing a blank in the junk department.
2: I knew it had something to do with me. Is that why there are suddenly a lot of other Kens?
1: Is that why there are suddenly a lot of other Kens? Have you seen those guys? I didn't think there could be anything worse than you, but... Most of them look like Justin Bieber had Rachel Maddow's baby. What is wrong with those f- at Mattel? I told them what I need. I need a 14-inch John Ham doll.
2: 14 inches tall, you mean?
1: Um, yes, that's exactly what I mean. I'm 11.5 inches tall, so he should be taller.
2: What about me? What do I do?
1: You? You're a boring white plastic male with no ideas or principles. America was basically made for you. Ryan Seacrest has a net worth of $380 million, and I'm supposed to worry about you? Run for a vacant Republican house seat in the Midwest if you can't think of anything else. Now beat it. Man Bun Ken and I are driving up to Mass Mocha, and now the doctor who botched Joe Scarborough's tummy tuck Colin McEnroe. All right, yes.
3: Oh, my. <laughs> what are we supposed to say after all this? Yes, I don't know.
2: I like the idea that, that there would be a depressed Barbie, though, that, mm-hmm. that they'd sell you that. Um, so, um, yeah, we're going to be talking today on the nose about, uh, first of all, well, I'll tell you about second of all. Second of all, we will be talking about the Ken doll reboot, which we're assuming most of you know about. We may tie in something called Bro Tailors, <laughs> which I still don't understand, despite efforts. To do otherwise. Uh, Towards the end, yeah, if we do have time, we're going to talk about the uh, rather peculiar feud. We don't usually do exactly politics on this show, but I don't think this is exactly politics. The way the feud between the hosts of the Morning Joe MSNBC show and uh, President Trump has exploded in very peculiar ways, dragging in uh, bloody facelifts, imaginary bloody facelifts, perhaps, and now even a a National Enquirer angle. Uh, So, anyway, uh, we're going to begin with the reboot of the Gong Show. It's reboot day here. Uh, So, joining us, uh, from my, starting from my left over here, is Teresa Kramer, writer and editor of E-Content Magazine and founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for grumpy young adults uh, in Connecticut. Rich Holland is a prof- principal and design director at CoLab. And Rand Richards Cooper uh, is a novelist, essayist, and critic. He writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine these days. Um, we're going to begin with, as we say, the reboot of A Beloved Old Friend uh, back in the late 1970s when television was kind of blandly cheerful. There was no such thing as peak TV. The number one shows were Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley and Three's Company. But there was something else. There was something called The Gong Show, uh, and it was hosted by a man named Chuck Barris, who. Prior to that, it had only ever been a producer. Um, it had a, a lot of people competing in kind of a mock talent show. Most of them seemed to be in on the gag. G- gag. Actually, let's hear the old one for a second. Wolfie, it's, it's A3. Let's hear. This is the unknown comic who usually uh, performed with a paper bag over his head. All
1: right. Here comes the Prince of Puns, folks. Here comes, here come,
4: here comes the Duke of Dillies.
0: The wizard of <laughs> the
1: unknown color.
3: Boy, <laughs> am I sweating! <laughs> Known comic, America's first punk comedian. <laughs> I tell you, I'm in a pretty good mood to take my dog to a flea circus. He stole the show. <laughs> hey, this is Peter Marshmallow here, and our first question goes to Paul Lynn. Paul Lynn, how do you keep fish from smelling? You cut off their little noses.
2: <laughs> All right, so um uh, all of us watched The Gong Show, right? I mean oh, yeah. there, was, there was sort of this illusion that nobody watched The Gong Show because The Gong Show was often slung around as, as the paradigmatic example of really bad television in that age. But it turns out everybody liked it. And Rand, you know, you can even kind of hear it there. I mean the, the panelists were not for the most part super talented people with some exceptions. Chuck Barris wasn't even really a, a real like TV host. And, and the acts weren't any good. But it was sort of like a party we were all invited to or something.
3: Yeah, it was and, and um, it, we can talk about this or that aspect of the, of the new version including the strange fact that, that the host is Mike Myers in disguise. But um, I think one thing that the, the new version does well is it captures the sort of generous embrace of the oddball that was part of the, the essential experience of the early show. And we were talking beforehand, it, it occurred to me to think that I had, I had really forgotten. Uh, I, I was in high school when the original Gong Show was on, I didn't watch it that much. But I subsequently, decades later, watched about four seasons of American Idol. And when you, when you think about the new Gong Show and watch it, you're probably watching it through the lens of the, the, the current kinds of talent shows. And, in some fundamental ways, in interesting ways, it really was very, very different um, in terms of what it was trying to do, its attitude toward talent and, uh, and, and that essential th- – there was always a grotesque element in the gong show and some of the new acts in the new show like the woman who puts the huge spider in her mouth <laughs> and then plays the harmonica. The, these acts are inherently bizarre and, and grotesque and there's a, a, a generous and funny embrace of – Acts that are really going nowhere beyond the gong show. They're I- inherently right. <laughs> grotesque. The grotesqueness is not that someone's trying to do something good and doing it bad. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do something completely pointless and, and Dada-esque bizarre, and they're doing it perfectly.
0: Yeah. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, that, that, that was one of my fascinations with, with the new show, is that it's clear that the acts that are here do not have a shelf life longer than 30 seconds. You know, that's that's the full extent of it. And the, <laughs> the judges this time around were actually being sort of very producer-like in trying to figure out like, well, what's the angle that this thing could have had that could have made it on Broadway, right? You're like, what are you talking about? Because right? Woman just shoved the spider in her mouth. How long can that go on for? Or which tell about the um, banana couple? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, the you know the banana couple was working really well for me. They were adorable. They looked like they were going to do a magic set. And they would just take little bites of banana and spit them in the air and the other person, the couple would catch it. And that was all lovely. You know, they'd throw <laughs> it at the at the judges, they'd play along, except for one judge um, who had to kind of do his own germophobic thing. And um but there came a point where the the husband in the couple uh took all the banana in his mouth and they started sharing it back and forth. <laughs> That was unwatchable. It was completely unwatchable. Just
2: to even enrich your uh, sense of this, uh, we have uh, a little clip from that uh, episode. The married couple, um, uh, they have just finished that act that involves spitting bananas into each other's mouths. And the judge's mouths, now you're going to hear the judge's comments. I must say,
4: you have the gag reflex of a garbage disposal. (laughs) And I read that in the best way. Judges,
3: are you ready
4: to give your school?
0: That's...
3: uh, First time I put a banana in a dude's mouth. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Hello! Uh,
2: kudos. Bravo to you guys. Yes. In this day and age, to have the courage to stand up there and really entertain everybody. I thought it was fantastic,
0: right? Fantastic. Very <laughs> right? okay. entertaining. Fantastic. Solid 10 for me. Fantastic. Well done. Ten. Okay. Are you guys married for real? Yeah. You guys are married for real. For realsies, for realsies. And oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's enough. And um, <laughs> it's really like either the most hideous, disgusting thing, but contextually, it could also be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. In the context of this, it's actually really lovely and sweet. Oh! And really good. It
1: really Thank good. You. Thank
0: you. Fantastic. Zach Um I just, how did this, how does something like this start? <laughs> I mean, just out of curiosity, as uh, it.
1: Just to keep the fires burning. Experiment
0: <laughs> in the kitchen. Was
1: it, but
2: like, all right. So, so one of the voices you hear there is that of Will Arnett. Will Arnett is actually the producer uh, behind this show, and as Rand alluded to, um, uh, one of the conceits of this show is that it's hosted by this beloved but unknown on this side of the pond British comedian Tommy Maitland a type of comedian who really does exist in all of the ways that I just described. And they've, in fact, generated this complex biography for him. You go online, read all about all the things that Tommy has done in his career. But Teresa, he's not Tommy Maitland, or he may be Tommy Maitland as much as anybody ever could be. But we sort of know he's Mike Myers, right?
4: Well, so I went into this not knowing that it was Mike Mm -hmm. Myers, because the first I'd even heard the show was coming back was when I got the email to be on the show today. So I just watched it and I'm watching this guy and I'm wondering, like, what's, What's wrong with his face? It doesn't look like human skin. And why does he sound a little bit like Shrek? And then a couple minutes into it, I realized that's Mike Myers under there. And I was like, am I, am I going insane? I don't know. Am I imagining this? So I Google it. And sure enough, it's Mike Myers. And it's this weird drag show he's putting on as Tommy Maitland.
2: And Rich, this is never acknowledged, right? I mean, I don't don't think they're ever going to say that this is anybody other
0: than Tommy. No, no. They're sticking with character on this thing. (laughs) Um, uh, So one interesting thing about this for me is if you try to compare this gong show to the old gong show, Mm -hmm. you're not going to like this at all. Right. And uh, and with the first episode, that's the the route that I took. You know, I loved the old Mm -hmm. gong show. I loved the... The kind of weird intimacy that was formed there. Mm-hmm. I loved how the the judges just seemed like they just you know spilled out of this bacchanal disaster, and you know, <laughs> and um, and uh, it, you know, and had this kind of like closeness mm-hmm. and and frankly I think even in the in the production design the set was so much smaller yeah. you know so you were really all together in this space and that that worked better.
4: Am I wrong in thinking that in the original one you actually sort of had to run across the stage to ring the gong
2: like No no, no it was, right was right behind you. It yeah, was, was behind, so right yeah. behind you but
0: not it's actually closer behind them.
2: That's right. right. It's, it yeah. was easier to hit the gong yeah. in, the, in the original mm-hmm. show. They have to climb up a little ramp on this one for some reason. Yeah. Well, Rand, you know, not to over-intellectualize something like the original gong <laughs> show. But, <laughs> I, you know, I watched, I started watching it, like, uh, rewatching it on YouTube and other places, and I thought, well, this is sort of, it, there is something kind of Dadaist, intentionally, or otherwise, mm-hmm. about this. There's sort of a rejection uh, of the formation of really usable content uh, as opposed to, and, and kind of an insistence of kind of emptying out forms and kind of waving them around in front of you. And it was the people who were attracted to it, Steve Martin was regularly, who was about to launch Fully, as kind of a Dadaist comedian for a while anyway, was a panelist and also would try to pretend to try to sneak on the show as a contestant. Uh, David Letterman, who would later be ex- experimenting more with kind of some of the little postmodern things that they do on the original long show, was a panelist. He looked pretty miserable being a panelist, but he always looks pretty miserable. I mean there was something – I don't know. I can't tell whether they knew it or not. But to, in a way, there was something really, really innovative in the way that this show kind of rejected entertainment expertise.
3: I think part of that, uh, for certainly part of it involved the ultra low production values that Rich mentioned <laughs> and and you're never uh, you know it would take a daring team to get back to that level right. I don't think you're gonna get that so one thing that you'll sense even if you're not paying attention to it in the new Gong show is that they're, they're trying to do a sort of pseudo low production value show they're trying to they're trying to recapture that spirit but they're spending you know Google oodles of money on it but I think there's an if you go back to that 70s moment, Colin, what you're referring to was also a way of reaching back from there 20 years to sort of the dawn of television, Before, including live television, mm. when things were not scripted, you remember the the, the the television that you grew up watching in the 60s and 70s was often – it was all scripted and stultifying, really bad dramas. we were living in such a golden age of television. We have been for 20 years that um, it's, you have to be Colin's age and my age to recall how bad almost all of television was back then. <laughs> so there was – a reach back from the 70s to the 50s to try to rescue some uh, even then lost essence of impromptu television with all of its risks involved. And the show did that with unintentional brilliance.
4: Well, I've been sort of wondering because I have very vivid memories of loving this show as a kid, Mm. but I was not even alive when it aired originally, right? So I could Mm. only have seen it in reruns and I believe it was completely off the air by like 1984 or 85. Oh yeah. yeah. So I was four. and I, and wow. i was watching this show and and just remember it well enough to kn- know that i probably drove my mother nuts wanting to watch this show but can't remember specifics about it so i'm watching so i watched a little bit of the old clips and thought like why would a 4 year old want to <laughs> watch this show but I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? So you don't have to pay attention to it. You can just watch one guy do something kooky, which is probably the height of entertainment to a four or five-year-old, mm-hmm. and think, wow. And if someone comes out and sings badly and you're five, you still kind of think they're good. So you don't really know the difference. And— um, That still really appeals to me, this idea that these just, like, common people who just are like, you know what? I just feel like being on TV this week, and they're just going to go work up some ridiculous skill. I mean, some of them obviously have a root, like the banana eaters. They've been practicing that for a long time. But then there are the people who come out. Like, on last night's show, there were guys who dressed up in dinosaur costumes and just ran around.
2: (laughs) I love I thought that that was brilliant.
4: My boyfriend (laughs) looks at me, and he goes, aren't they supposed to have some sort of talent? And I would just, like, shook my head. I'm like, no, man, this is the gong show. That's well, the, the other point. show you're reminded
3: of, and yeah. I thought about it in the excerpt mm-hmm. that you played earlier on, was laughing. Yeah. And and, yeah, me and too. sort of the, uh, the Dada-esque discontinuities, mm-hmm. even in terms of the way dialogue worked in these shows, and then suddenly a crash of a symbol, and then we go off in another direction, and a and a little spoof that you really haven't figured out if it had mm-hmm. any meaning whatsoever, but now you're into the next thing. Yeah. So you know, that is a that's a lost uh, That's funny because uh, so I had the, the exact texture. same thought.
2: But exactly. yeah, but but Rich also the other thing that they're doing and it goes back to Teresa's boyfriend's point is they're they're one of the things that both gong shows did was reject the notion of a game, right? Exactly. It's yeah. as much of an accomplishment to get gonged as yeah. it is to get a high score.
0: Absolutely, and um, and I think some of the the shows right now, you know, uh, are picking up on that, right? So they'll slip folks in that that you know aren't going to make it through their their two minute performances before you know before the buzzer gets hit on them, but. There's something that's missing, uh, you know, about the entire about having the entire show be dedicated to, you know, to the massive, phenomenal, absolute screw up. Right. And um, and there's there's, I think, poetry <laughs> yeah. in that. Right. Yeah. Wait. So so this one, the people are working way too hard in some instances to be
2: bad. I don't, you've seen the <laughs> second shows. You, you saw the zombie ballet where right. I mean, that's, you know, there's like. You know, $50,000 of production in this little thing right there. Yeah.
4: And so the thing with the – you know, I keep thinking about someone like William Hung from American Idol, right? Who Who, just
2: happened to be a gong show person born too late.
4: But there's a certain level of cruelty to someone who thinks they're good and is then rejected and then even worse sort of embraced – for his badness, and right. he doesn't seem to be in on the joke. Yeah. Everyone on the Gong Show is in on the joke, so you don't feel exactly, bad right. when they're yep. when they get gonged. You don't feel like their career has now been ruined. These are just people who are like they seem like frat and, guys who came that, up with an and idea. That is the
3: essential <laughs> difference with the shows like like right. American Idol, mm-hmm. there is that generosity in in the embrace of the grotesque. Grotesque. Mm-hmm. The grotesqueness plays a huge role in American Idol, but a lot of it is, you know, it's unintentional, right. and mm-hmm. often the person who who's performing it is uh, is unaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it's we, not we talked uh, right. we talked in our emails about Simon Cowell's role in in American Idol, which is essentially to lower the boom on people and their hopes. American Idol is a great lottery, essentially mm-hmm. a sweepstakes that's going to produce one. Winner who has a chance at a sort of glossily generic uh, pop idol status. This is exactly there's no the only win, you're you're there for the experience in the Gong Show. I don't even know what what do you win. Well, two thousand dollars. Well, it's yeah,
2: two thousand yeah, yeah, dollars and seventeen cents. Right. It used yeah. to be. I think in the seventies it was five hundred right. dollars. Five hundred thirty eight dollars. And I mean it was some. Well, yeah. So, although I just I want to say something a little more about that too, mm-hmm. which is that it's odd what's happened here because you know yeah a lot of the new shows are really effectively effectively they are talent shows, but they're hybridized, right? Mm-hmm. So American Idol begins with this kind of cattle call where a lot of people who are, you know, not are, are inadequate and either they know it or they don't or whatever. And and when Cowell was on the show, he's now over on America's Got Talent doing essentially the same thing, but when he was on the show, he would just insult them in ways that I think he thinks he has this kind of Wildian and mm-hmm. rapier like wit, but he doesn't. Yeah. He's yeah. just kind of a mean guy who doesn't like people very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a little bit of a celebration of the goofiness, but not with any real heart to it. Right. And and then, you know, the other thing about it is, I mean, I keep thinking about Albert Goldman's line about the narrowing gap between the expert and the amateur. Mm-hmm. And when you watch America's Got Talent, there often are very talented people who have to pass muster with Howie Mandel, who's kind of a mediocre comedi- comedian, <laughs> Mel B., an ex-Spice girl, Heidi Klum, she's at the end of her modeling career, and Simon Cowell, who's not really good at anything. And those are the gatekeepers. In a way, this is, you know, the, the, it's a demonstration of the arbitrar- arbitrariness of show business yeah. that you have to prove yourself to those people.
0: So uh, a number of years ago, Colin, um, uh, s- some work that uh, that a friend of mine and I had done for, for a project that we were doing. Got admitted into the Museum of Bad Art. Um, <laughs> that it's a uh, it's a thing in a basement of a movie theater in Dedham, Mass. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that's amazing about that for 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 us was we got to see their criteria. For uh, for determining what bad art actually is, Mm -hmm. and curating bad art is a challenge. You know, you know, because there's fake bad art, Mm -hmm. there's bad art trying to be bad Mm -hmm. art. You know, there's art that if you call it bad, you're gonna hurt somebody's feelings. You don't want to call it bad art. You know, so the whole process of determining what would actually get into this this gallery exhibit was was challenging, and um and when I. Think of the original Gong Show, uh, they were up for that challenge, man. You know, they were really good yeah. at getting it. And the folks that were there actually I listened to that um, to that stand up comet sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we just played a little while ago and he delivered some awful puns, mm-hmm. but he knew how to deliver a joke. Yeah, you know, yeah. the the guy had a good rhythm. He had a good, you know, a good well, sense of himself.
4: Well, he's an interesting example, right? Because he wasn't act- he was yeah. actually a known comic, exactly. right? He's the unknown comic who happens to actually be known and was a pseudo professional. C-level mm-hmm. yeah. comedian, Canadian, Canadian
2: yeah. comic.
3: Well, the, the, you know, the celebration of either bad art or the celebration of the oddball is the celebration of a passionate dedication to something that is particular and strange, mm-hmm. to something that is private and yours. I think it's easy sometimes, especially these days, for interesting reasons, to forget that we are partly a nation of oddballs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's worth celebrating. American Idol and the other shows don't really quite do that because mm-hmm. all of those people, however delusionally or not, are actually aiming toward this sort of generic generically popular goal, and that is you know, to be a superstar, the person who stays at home practicing putting a tarantula in her mouth and then playing a harmonica <laughs> is not on a track to superstardom. And it's 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 kind of lovely and refreshing to, to be reminded of the potential for oddball passions that we still, as Americans, have.
2: Yeah, I, I'll give America's Got Talent a little credit for at least um, celebrating street performers, <laughs> um, dancing crew, dance crews from all over the place, and and people who have those kind of odd talents that maybe used to get on Arthur. Free or something, but don't anymore. I mean we're, we're also sort on... of
4: stupid human tricks, right? right. From Dave Letterman. Yeah, yeah. Right. so yeah
2: We're working on a show right now. Josh Nalea is working on a show for us right now about yodeling. Well, mm-hmm. like, you know, there are yodelers on Americans mm-hmm. Got Talent, like good yodelers, you know, but they, they you can't work as a yodeler well, really anymore.
4: I was sort of thinking the guy from the first show with the jump rope, oh, which was right. like our real talent, right? Mm-hmm. I was amazed mm-hmm. by what he was able to do all these jump rope tricks. And I was thinking that could be a guy who's on America's Got Talent. But, like, it probably doesn't go beyond what we saw, right? Exactly. So he couldn't have advanced right. through one of these shows where you have to get voted on every week. But mm-hmm. hes per- I was sort of annoyed that he did not win that first episode because I was like, he's got it all over the banana people. I don't oh. understand.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I just threw that. it down with Rich. We we're could gonna have, have to that debate right, right yeah. now. <laughs> There, uh, you know, I, I could talk about this all day, but I, we probably shouldn't. Although I'd be interested. I think I've got uh, Teresa's take on the Tommy Maitland persona of Mike Myers. Uh, I don't know. What What do you guys think about I mean, I, I found him... I really felt like the episode one of the show was like a practice thing that they Mm -hmm. put on the air or something. They had the wrong (laughs) judging panel. Episode two, they get Fred Armisen, Elizabeth Banks, who is terrific. Mm -hmm. She's a lot like J.P. Morgan. She's just a fun person to have at your party. You know, Mm -hmm. you really want her at your party. And and Will Forte. So that's a terrific judging panel. And I don't know. I thought – um, I want to ask both of you about this Tommy Maitland thing that that Myers is doing. But Rich, you've seen both. I thought Tommy kind of hit his stride a little bit more in the second thing. The right? se- yeah.
0: I think the the show overall hit its stride in the second one, and um, and the director found the place for Tommy, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, and it was. Further off to the side, right? Um, uh, the the first show for, for anybody who's going to give this thing a try, and and I, and I actually really recommend it. I didn't mm-hmm. think I was going to after the first one. But start with episode two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first one is all set up, you know, and these crazy camera movements trying to create an energy that wasn't legitimately there. Um, with the second show, the the as Colin pointed out, the the panelists were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Every time you cut to them, they were having a ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and weren't trying to sort of protect their own personal images, mm-hmm. which was beneficial. I kind of hope they're and, giving
4: them cocktails before they send them out there know. because the bawdier they get, I think right. the better the show will. Well, exactly. And
0: I think that was the winning <laughs> yeah. element of yeah. of the original gong show. I got mm-hmm. the feeling that. Everybody there was just blitzed most of the time. Well, I, I
2: think the, the subsequent legend was that cocaine played a fairly yeah. large role in the original Gong show, although Chuck Barris wound up being kind of an anti-drug crusader. His daughter actually tragically died young as an overdose. But you go back and watch Barris, and he does this little thing where he puts his finger up to his nose periodically uh, in the manner of somebody who might have just recently <laughs> used cocaine. But, but Rand, this Tommy Maitland thing, I mean, first of all, we should say Tommy comes out inexplicably in the matador's hat, uh, which... He keeps on. Uh, he goes over to this. He has a little side area where he has a picture of the Queen framed.
3: <laughs> right. That's my favorite. Oh. And he and 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 uh, as Teresa said earlier, the, the ma- he looks like Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm-hmm. He looks very much like Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, so it's this mask-like appearance, and he's he's quite good at what he does. Of course, he's Mike Myers. He's just, he was Austin Powers. He, but you're asking yourself, why is this necessary? Mike yeah. Myers himself would be a great host of this show. So my first thought was, well, hosts of these shows are either washed up once upon a time sort of actors, or 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 just benign, harmless, never were's and has beens So to disguise yourself as one is at least to avoid the risk of being accused of being one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's a sort of convoluted reason for doing this. I, yeah, I would just like to see show. Mike Myers host the show.
2: Uh, I see. I think he's really. En- I mean, he's enjoying this. Everything now is a throwaway, a little (laughs) aside or something. So as he's uh, ushering this uh, two guys in dinosaur costumes off, they're like, you know, very toothy, scary looking dinosaurs, but they're (laughs) idiots. Um, But he's he's walking them off stage. He says – he goes, off stage you go and keep them biting to a minimum, said the actress to the bishop. Uh, (laughs) And and you just feel like he's – He's going to have a lot of fun being Tommy. I think, Rand, the answer to your question is Mike Myers is going to have more fun being Tommy than yes. he would being Mike Myers. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and maybe we will, it's too. It's
4: probably this character he's been harassing people with for years. <laughs> sure, and then they right. were finally like, why for don't sure. we just get Mike to come host this as <laughs> Tommy so yeah. we don't have to hire someone else.
2: Right. I'm sure he, yeah. I'm sure he calls Will Arnett up all yeah. of the no time. <laughs> will, it's Tommy. <laughs> all right. Uh, it's, it's the Gong Show. It's on ABC. Yeah, yeah. Try watching that second episode. It's pretty good. Well, we're doing The Nose with Teresa Kramer, Rand Richards-Cooper, and uh, Rich Holland. And if you think that uh, Tommy Maitland and Mike Myers have identity problems, you should go talk to Ken. Uh, Ken, of course, the longtime companion of Barbie, used to be basically just sort of one, you know, kind of slightly variously tinted, Persona doll persona, but now Mattel has released a whole new line of Ken dolls, and there's a whole bunch of them, and they look different, and they have different body shapes and skin shades and hairstyles, but they're all Ken somehow. I mean, they're all Ken. Um, the one that's getting the most attention is uh, undoubtedly Man Bun Ken, um, and who looks a bit like. Um, well, it looks a bit like a number of people. I keep associating him with Tim Robbins and high fidelity, you know, sort of trying a little bit too hard, mm. uh, but ultimately malevolent. Um, but anyway, so this – first of all, the So the first thing we should say mm. is that something like this happens and 40 seconds later, Twitter gets started mm. and just has a lot of fun for days and days.
4: That's how I heard of it originally. It was one of those tweet roundups on, you know, BuzzFeed or something like, look what the internet has to say about Ken. But the funniest one I saw was, you know – A woman tweeted, Man Bun Ken just interrupted me to tell me Bernie would have won. And I was just like, this is my new favorite (laughs) thing on the Internet. And, um, yeah, I mean, the the Internet exploded with this. I don't know what – we all know how it happens. We all know exactly what we're talking about. They just lose their minds.
2: Right. But, Rich, the other thing, obviously, that Mattel is really doing, they don't care how much the Internet jerks about this. They know who their market is, right? Mm -hmm. And and
0: presumably they – Focus group the crap out of this thing. <laughs> they always do. That's what Mattel does. You know, they <laughs> they're a big corporation, they protect their brand like nobody's business and uh and they do their research. Uh so um and we have to bear in mind that uh that this can doll. Is mm-hmm. not for us sitting in here and what yeah. our sensibilities are. Is you know, as, as people in our. I have a
4: question for you, as someone who might do this. Do they do what? Uh, <laughs> ju- like back a, back a, no, no, no. Like a uh, like a focus group, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. W- would they focus group the children to find this out? Because of course. I do you yeah, think yeah. kids were saying we you, want a yeah, chubby or of Ken? Course.
0: You focus group both things. You okay. uh, you'd focus group the kids for the product, mm-hmm. and uh, you'd focus group uh, the parents as mm-hmm. well. For an awful lot of the um the marketing and right. and um and the the purchasing uh, process okay so yeah so you, you dig into both and you and you get the pieces right um and they're not necessarily the same mm-hmm. uh, and the the neat thing about this. Mm -hmm. That I think is I just kind of like the diversity. I like that we can talk about it that way, you know, and Mm -hmm. I like that um, that despite what might be going on in the world elsewhere Mm -hmm. uh, that wants to do what Twitter's doing and and pan diversity and treat it like, you know, like it's like it's a joke um, that Mattel saying like, you know, the long game Mm -hmm. is in this game. Right. You know, and I kind of applaud that.
2: Rand, take it away. Well, there are
0: so many thoughts, but one—the
3: <laughs> simplest one—is Ken doll. To be called a Ken doll is always—it's always a usable and useful epithet. Mm-hmm. So it means you know you're you're a glossily generic person, um, but if if we're going to diversify Ken doll so that he begins to represent the actual uh, range of human features, mm-hmm. how can you call someone a Ken doll anymore with 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 such a useful smack of of, of irony? Mm-hmm. So that's that's my first thought. But I, looking at the big now that we we all saw that array of different Ken dolls, mm-hmm. including Man Bun Ken. One thing I wonder. Well, this is sort of playing catch up. I mean, men mm-hmm. have been wearing their hair, for instance, any way they want to for for decades now. Mm-hmm. I'm of the age. I was probably the last generation of American males at large, anyway, who were forced to get their hair cut really short by their father. Mm-hmm. A terrible episode in the kitchen. You're getting your hair cut. You look like a girl. <laughs> not in my house. And so on. you know. Now it's like whatever. In, if yeah. you you look at high school in in many in many places, not in all places, but in mm. many places, you look at. High school kids, how the boys, how they wear their hair. It's, you know. So I, I think I think Mattel's playing catch up a little bit that that way. But the the last thing I'll say is all of for me, all of whatever we might say about Ken, the Ken doll, and I have a child who just finished fifth grade and she's just coming out of the doll, the extensive doll playing part of mm-hmm. her life. The the article mentioned that um, kids and their, their girls, they use these dolls for storytelling and and play acting. That companies are still producing physical objects for children to hold, mm-hmm. play with, and then use in their lives in order to generate narrative games that they play each other with each other. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's great. Make more of that kind of product.
4: One of the yeah. things I was thinking about in terms of just having been a young girl who had a lot of Barbie dolls was that I just didn't have Kens, right? I had like one or two. It wasn't like I needed to go run out and get the new Ken. But now... Because they all look so different from each other, you you can I could see a little girl or whoever um, saying, well, I got I got to get them all or I, I want that one mm. because I like his hair better. And I also like this one's short. So can I have them both? You know, instead of just being like, you yeah, know, whatever, they all look the same and they all have on the same boring tuxedo. I don't care.
0: My, my sister yeah. grabbed my G.I. Joe's yeah. <laughs> to play with her Barbies mm-hmm. and just, you know. It was optically wrong.
4: Yes, so. <laughs> the size the size differences. Well, well, yeah.
0: some of this is. I mean, I, I sent around
2: uh, just a little picture. Lisa Simpson, famously mm-hmm. as a preteen, used to read this teen mag called "Non-Threatening Boys." <laughs> you know, and all of the Kens are kind of non-threatening boys, mm-hmm. right? There's never going to be a Stanley Kowalski Ken, no matter how <laughs> many Kens they make, because in fact, for the most part, the market, as you're saying, Rand, is to third and fourth grade, second, third, and fourth grade girls. They don't really want. You know, they they want somebody who looks like a cast off from a boy band, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's who their idea of the per- – I, I also just would like to say – and I want to leave a little time for the rest of our discussion here about something else. But uh, Susan Campbell during the many years that I sat next to her at work, nine years but who's counting, used to call me a Ken doll. But what she meant was that in her opinion, I had no genitalia.
3: <laughs> uh, and that has not been changed in the in no, the new no, lineup no.
4: but you 're not allowed to photograph Ken with his uh, clothes Without off his clothes according up. to that g q article right. like uh, which although there were lots of just Ken heads for some
0: reason mm-hmm. that was on okay. sticks, which is yeah. really yeah. concerning yeah
2: and I would also add that uh, there was a politician, I could probably even say who it was uh, it was Billy debella, who for many years was a state senator and who has had these perfect suits and this very, very sleek slick back silvery hair, and this kind of uh, demonic, cheerful expression, and I think it was Gail Collins who referred to him as the Ken doll from hell. <laughs> uh, so I, I will <laughs> say
3: I asked my daughter what she thought about Barbies and Kens, mm-hmm. and she mostly played with American Girl dolls mm-hmm. and with these other things called reborns. And by the way, that's <laughs> a whole no, that is a whole another topic. I can't even terrifying. get into it. <laughs> yeah, I but, uh, but I said, but I said, well, what about Barbies? Oh, I don't really like them. Uh, and she ex- explained why: the mm-hmm. the size, the, the 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 fact that their bodies were sort of shiny and, and hard. And mm-hmm. and she said, mostly we just we pulled their heads off and turned into zombies <laughs> and I thought some things never change right
0: on yeah, exactly. I'm re- <laughs> go ahead I- I'm just also really curious uh, for-, for the folks here um, so Granted, the the girls are playing for the most part, according mm-hmm. to marketing, are playing with these toys, but um, they don't live in in uh, in a sort of vacuum universe. Right. You know, they these are representative of you know uh, of the range uh, that's permissible for boys now. Mm-hmm. You know that mm-hmm. uh, that that what Ken used to represent mm-hmm. is now all of these Kens, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm just really curious because I can't you know. I didn't read anything on it, you know, but I, I'm really curious what we think the effect on on young boys are and on uh, on their ability to to be who they are and mm-hmm. to have that, ex- uh, you know, be accepted in a, in a bunch of different ways. Um, if there's a sort of crossover benefit that might exist there. Are we going to have to sing that
2: song from "Free to Be You and Me"? No. <laughs> a doll, a doll. William wants a doll. It's no right. All right, we have to take a we have to quickly uh, segue here. We just have just a few minutes to talk about this, and as I say, usually we kind of stay away from um, just straight up politics on this show. But this very odd thing happened, which is just every, something really odd happens every week these days. Obviously, uh, Donald Trump has been feuding for quite a while with the two hosts uh, of Morning Joe, Mika Brzezinski, formerly of this TV market, uh, and Joe Scarborough, who lives up in. New Canaan uh, and uh, the latest his latest accusation uh, leveled at them is that they showed up on his doorstep one night in Mar-a-Lago trying to ingratiate themselves uh, with him in one, some way or another and uh, he went out of his way to say that, sh- that Mika Brzezinski's face was bleeding from a recent <laughs> facelift which just seems like something that a president even – Theodore Roosevelt, who could get kind of personal with people, uh, would never say. The latest wrinkle into this whole story is now uh, Joe Scarborough's suggestion that White House people, White House insiders said that we're threatening him and Mika Brzezinski with a National Enquirer story about them. Trump is very close to the um, the, uh, publisher of National Enquirer and that somehow or other, I guess if they didn't toe the line or something, there was going (laughs) to be a National Enquirer story about their relationship. I don't even know what it is I want to ask any of you about this other than – I keep asking myself, Teresa, Mm -hmm. did, did he just cross a new line and say something like worse than anything I've ever heard him say before or am I reacting to the fact that he's obviously been cautioned against doing this and he just keeps doing it?
4: Oh, that's a wonderful question because the discussion we were having downstairs in the lobby was sort of like this. I mean, this is hardly a topic because it just happens all the time and we don't even know what to say about it anymore. It's just sort of like it's what happens when you wake up in the morning.
2: Does that mean he's won?
4: Yeah. Well, the thing I kept thinking about this, though, was... Like, I, you know, people in glass houses—is it? Are are you telling me you nor anyone you happen to be married to has never had plastic surgery, and that you're gonna? I, it just seemed like a strange thing for him, well, of all people, to be commenting on. Uh, I th- oh, e- assuming it's even sure. true, which probably not.
0: There, there is uh, an insidious dark genius mm-hmm. in this in <laughs> this man throwing out these completely intense bombs mm-hmm. is that the responses to them are always the wrong, darn response. Yeah. Um, the initial response uh, that uh, that I saw being pushed out was to justify, you know, to vow, to prove that she actually didn't have a facelift <laughs> that day. Look at these images. Look, no mm-hmm. facelift. He's lying about that. But that's really not what the point here yeah. <laughs> is at all. You know, the, the big point is, like, The guy is the president (laughs) of the United States of America— Put on your big boy pants. Yeah. You know? So,
2: and, and we saw tweets like that coming from senators. But you know, Rand, I thought you did a made an interesting bit of um, uh, of analogizing the analogy between uh, Chuck Barris, the original host of the Gong Show, who seemed to embrace losers and misfits uh, with a certain amount of generosity and heart and and agape, uh, and Simon Cowell, who clearly has a chip of ice where his heart should be and doesn't really. Uh, he, he might tease them in a way similar to Barris but not, you know, with the same purity of soul and, and, and that you analogized, I think, between Rickles and Trump, right?
3: Right. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the many ways in which I was wrong about Donald Trump the um, most obvious one being that I never thought he would be president. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, I can sort of remember thinking, well, even if if he, if he did get to be president, at least, and this was before I really understood anything about him, at least mm-hmm. he would be great at the sort of roasting function because you know he's so he abuses people. He's great at it. So let's put him in a roast. He'll take and he'll he'll give. Well, now we know he can't take at all, mm-hmm. and. And he's um, – while he says all sorts of nasty things about people, there's never the underlying sort of uh, flow of affection and play that makes a Don Rickles-like abusive comedy. Or
4: like a Joan Rivers. Yeah, or a yeah. Joan Rivers. Like, sure.
3: I grew up my, – my father and his pals, their form of friendship was exclusively one of group mutual abuse. Mm. And I knew my father really liked someone when he was just – completely taking the piss out of that person. That's what he and his best friends did. I remember mm-hmm. later asking him, Dad, you know, did you ever, like, say anything nice to each other? And then he would list this <laughs> long list of hideous insults he'd made. He said, yeah, that shows I really love Vinny. Yeah. Um, and what you get with Trump is you you have that mode of expression but but underneath it is petulance, re- re- resentment mm-hmm. and, a, and a bullying forcefulness. So the, the, I would just recommend anyone there was a great article, and I sort of have crip from that, by Susan Chira, C-H-I-R-A, in the, in the the Times today called Who Likes Trump's Tweets and Why? Mm-hmm. And, and she tries to look beyond the sense we would just like, how can he possibly be doing this, to, well, who actually out there is listening, who likes it, mm-hmm. and what does it say about particularly men's attitudes toward women and a mm-hmm. and a recrudescence? Actuated and symbolized by Trump, of what we think of as a sort of atavistic misogyny.
2: Right. By the way, both Don Rickles and Chuck Barris died within the last few months. Uh, at the time that Rickles died, I said this. I'll say it again. One thing I can guarantee you about Donald Trump is he owned a copy of Hello Dummy, which was sort of Rickles's classic live album, and I know it because I can also hear there's a Rickles beat. Um, he has a particular comic beat that he uses again and again and when Trump did the there's some certain things that Trump says thinking that they're jokes Mm -hmm. and they don't get interpreted that way and I think even though I'm yeah, I just deplore this man in every way that I could. It, it is true that sometimes he's taken seriously when he doesn't mean to be serious at all. I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. He was talking about Hillary Clinton during the campaign. He was talking about the Second Amendment and he goes and her appointing judges. And then he says, you know, but if she gets elected, there's nothing you can do. And then he said, well, Second Amendment people, maybe there's something you can do. Mm-hmm. That was a joke. You know, right. and it was very specifically a Rickles joke. Exactly. That, it had the Rickles beat in it, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing you could do. Uh, Second Amendment people, maybe there's something you could do. Uh, but I think you're right. The problem is that there was a soft, creamy center inside Don Rickles, and there's something very coiled and ugly and poisonous inside Donald Trump. <laughs> and with that, we have to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations. <laughs>
1: One thing I want to make sure we all agree on Don Rickles would not have been a good president. Right? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish spat bananas into her own mouth, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Howie Mandel. Enjoy the weekend. On Monday, we'll get you in the mood for independence with our show about Benedict Arnold. And now, back to Colin.
2: All right, time to make some recommendations. We'll start over here with Rand. What have you got? I'm going to recommend a book
3: called *The Billionaire's Vinegar* by Benjamin Wallace. It it falls into that large genre of what what you might call one object books. Mm-hmm. These started, as far as I can recall, back in the 80s. There was a book called *The Pencil*, right. and then there was Tracy Kidder's *House*.
2: Henry Petrosky.
3: Right, Henry Petroski. The way the one object book works is it takes a seemingly simple thing and then it uses it as a, as a lens or aperture to get all sorts of topics in. This is about a body Bottle of wine that was auctioned off in 1985 um, by uh, Christie's for $150,000. Malcolm Forbes bought it. It was allegedly inscribed by Thomas Jefferson. It was at 18th century uh, Chateau Lafitte. And um, what's terrific about this book, two things I would say. One, how to tell an exciting story while maintaining a certain distance of skepticism. After all, this is a bottle of wine that sold for $150,000. Two, if you sometimes wonder, when did the 80s completely go off the rails (laughs) Mm. in terms of money, class, status, and and power? Uh, This is as good an entry into that topic as any. Mm. So it's called The Billionaire's Vinegar. If you're a wine lover, you'll like it, but it's sociologically very tasty as well. Cool.
2: Mm.
0: All right, what have you got, Rich? Uh, A couple of things really quickly. You might have heard that the fireworks are back in the city Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to some funding from uh, UTC. Uh, So uh, it's going on next weekend, uh, and uh, it's not just the fireworks. A whole bunch of other stuff come back in the city. So go to summerinhartford.com, and you could check it out and do that thing that we do in the city. Go out and be a part of it. Uh, Next... um, uh, there is a show that's been going on in this town for the past six months or so that's called What's Your Problem? Uh, that Kion Wolf is, is putting on in the uh, down in CT Improv basement. Uh, the only way I could figure out that you could find out about it is at Facebook.com. Everybody has problems. It's filled with uh, panels giving you completely unprofessional advice. <laughs> and uh, it's hilarious. It comes off the rails. The entire time. Uh, The next one is on July 15th, 7 p.m. I will be on it. God help me. All right.
4: (laughs) Um, I just finished binge watching a show called Unreal. I believe it's a lifetime show, but I watched it on Hulu. And it's sort of the the behind-the-scenes dramatization of a Bachelor-like show. So it's about the producers and stuff. And I was a couple episodes into the show and I was just like anyone who watches this and can still watch an episode of The Bachelor is a bad person. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. if if half of this stuff is true, like this is – someone needs to put a stop to it now. It, but it's really engrossing. It's really interesting. I highly recommend it.
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard other people <laughs> recommend that too. All right. So I have to do a, a – I have to fill a little time here unless somebody else has an yeah. extra one. I got um, another one. OK. Well, I'll go to you in just a second. I'll do – the one I'm going to do, I thought I would sort of try to make something fit what we've been talking about a little bit. So um, on America's Got Talent this week, well, let me just say, I don't really, there's another person in my house who really likes America's Got Talent and who will beckon me in sometimes and say, watch this. And I go reluctantly usually because I sort of feel as though First of all, the the narrative of the show is finding some incredible gem, right? So they tend to get a little overexcited uh, about things that they they have found, uh, and also I feel like all of these shows contribute to the epidemic of over singing and too much melisma and stuff like that. So anyway, I get beckoned in, in for this, and there's this young man standing up there. His name is uh, Johnny Manuel, I believe. I thought I wrote it down here somewhere, and um, he. Um, he says he's a singer uh, and then he had a big break and then it kind of didn't work out. Uh, and he's going to do a Whitney Houston song, the song I Have Nothing. Uh, and mm-hmm. so he's. Uh, first of all, I'm thinking, well, that's a huge mistake because mm-hmm. you don't want to sing a song that's identified very heavily with a particular iconic singer. And she's a really good singer too. So chances are people are going to be comparing you unfavorably. And he begins to sing and he starts to sing in this kind of you know, nice well, kind of baritone range. And then he comes to the modulation and he kicks it up and it turns out he's got this beautiful high tenor range and then he kind of goes up into falsetto and his dynamics are – he's clearly not just off the streets. He's a trained singer. He's had a lot of work. He has some command of the dynamics. But I mean – you know, and they do have that kind of narrative on America's Got Talent that they just found this terrific thing. But you did watch even horrible Simon Cowell's nasty, glowering face (laughs) begins to light up maybe with dollar signs as he's thinking, you know, I could take this guy over and – you know, make him sing all kinds of crappy material. But, I mean, all of the judges are going crazy. And then the crowd starts to go crazy. And then they stand up, you know. And the, and he just he, – he does a beautiful job with this song. And I, like, don't even like Whitney Houston songs that much. And I was, you know – I've been singing it since then. So go online and look the verse. So his name is Johnny Manuel, uh, and just Google him plus the name of the song, uh, or or just him plus America's Got Talent. You can see this performance. It it really is a pretty remarkable thing. Which is no guarantee he's going to have a great career because so much of this is about material, mm-hmm. you know. And finding good material is really hard. If Bert Bacharach didn't exist, we would not know who Dion Warwick is today. So, uh,
0: you know, do you ever? Uh, do you have one more quick one? You want? Super quick one. Yeah. Uh, if you're around town and you're hungry, um, and I'll never recommend the restaurant because I just don't really get food, but this I got. <laughs> um, it's called Chango Rosa. Oh yeah, it's, um, it's yeah, it's at the Union Place train station. Eat outside um, <laughs> if you can because you'll be like looking at the park, you'll be hearing buses go by, and you'll see that Hartford trumps. Uh, um, Central Park West, any day of the year. And it's Jamie Bear. It's Bear mm. Does
3: Mexican. Right. Mm. The other restaurant you've got to go to, West Hartford Center, is wow. called Zohara. Mm. It's yeah. a Mediterranean Israeli restaurant. Fantastic.
2: Right. I still haven't gotten in there yet, but it looks really great. Of course, it's by the guy who does Trava and, Dorian Puga. and Avera and and yeah. stuff like that. All right. Thanks to this wonderful panel here. Thanks to uh, Teresa Kramer and Rich Holland and Rand Richards Cooper. Um, I-, I can tell you that next Friday we will be back with a news. We'll be talking about the movie Baby Driver. We've already got our panel assembled. We're way more prepared than we usually are. So tune in for that. We've got some new shows coming next week, too. We'll be back on Wednesday with The Scramble. Thursday's a show about arguing. We'll have that available in America. American Sign Language on the Facebook page of the Colin McEnroe show in what we call Radio for the Duff. So anybody who might be able to use that, let them know.
1: You know, I, for one, am really relieved at this facelift tweet controversy. Finally, the mystery of blood coming out of her wherever is solved.